0: morning we're moving into chapter 4 here in our study of 1st Peter. And uh, if you remember last week Will walked us through the end of chapter 3. I'll, I'll be referring back to that a little bit this morning. Um, also reaching back into chapter 2 as well as Peter kind of pulls some of these things together. Uh, so let's begin by reading our text here. 1st Peter 4 verses 1 through 6. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So as we uh, begin here at the first verse, what should catch our attention is Peter's use of the word, therefore. Again, that word reaches back to what he's previously stated in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, that Will covered last week. And what he's doing here is he's linking the relationship between the suffering of Christ and how these believers were to view and experience their own suffering in following Christ. Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter says, which encompasses his whole life of being mocked and ridiculed and spoken evil of and culminating in his death. And since he suffered this way, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Think about suffering in the same way, just the same way that Jesus did. And so we're to adapt that same mindset that Christ had regarding his suffering. So, so the question is, how did he think about suffering, right? If we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we need to know how did Jesus think about suffering. And to answer that, primarily, uh, we see in what Peter has already mentioned in chapter two, verses twenty one through twenty three, which I have up here on the screen. If somebody can read that for us, First Peter two, verses twenty one through twenty three. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay, thanks Lucy. So, a few things that I want to notice from this text that I think are really helpful for us to adapt the mind of Christ regarding suffering. In verse 22, notice here well, actually, backing up to verse 21, Peter tells us he, he left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Okay, so there's that aspect of following Christ in suffering, adapting the same mindset that he had. And then in verse 22 specifically, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't try to deceive his way out of suffering, right? Right? And I think that's a temptation that arises frequently for us when we are suffering for the sake of Christ. If I just tell a little lie here, I could avoid a lot of suffering for following Jesus. And Peter was all too familiar with that reality, wasn't he? He denied Jesus three times when questioned about his relationship to him. And he did so as to avoid suffering. Peter's looking at that situation as Jesus is being persecuted. And essentially, he's looking at that and saying, I see what they're doing to Jesus right now. And if I'm associated with Jesus, I fear what they might do to me. So Jesus didn't deceive anyone, even at the expense of his life. So that's the first way that we can follow Christ's thinking about suffering, is I'm not going to deceive my way out of suffering. right? I'm going to stand firm upon the conviction and the truth of God's word and not cave in in any way to the suffering that I'm, that I'm facing. I'm going to stay true to the calling that the Lord has given me to follow Christ in this way. And again, that has to be a work of the Spirit in our lives because our flesh will want to run every single time. As a way of self preservation. We notice also here in verse 23 when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, right? So he didn't return evil for evil. He didn't revile back when they reviled, and he didn't threaten those who were in opposition to him. And again, I think this is a great temptation. If you do this to me, what's the natural response? This is what I'm going to do to you. Right? So that's another example we have from Jesus about how we are to view suffering. And we'll look look at this a little bit more. Jesus makes a few statements uh, in Matthew 5 regarding that. Um, So those are just a couple things that I think we can learn about how to adapt that same mindset that Christ had. So those are what we shouldn't do. But then we see towards the end of the verse, what did Christ do? How can we follow him? Not only in making sure that we don't do these things, but what are we to do when it comes to suffering? We're to follow Christ in the sense that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. right? So he didn't take it into his own hands. And that was a temptation, I would say. He could have. And the reason that I would say that is you may remember what he said to his followers in the Garden of Gethsemane when the crowd came with swords and clubs along with the priests and the elders, and one of Jesus' followers pulls out the sword and chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Here's what Jesus says to the one who did that. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then watch this statement. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? Right? This thing could be over real quick if I wanted it to be. Okay? So you're looking at about. 60 to 75,000 angels coming down at once. And when you see in scripture that one causes terror <laughs> to all people, Jesus is emphasizing this fact. I, I could end this real quick if that were why I was here, if that's why I came. But he didn't. He kept entrusting himself day after day, even as the suffering continued to increase and ultimately climaxed in his death. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's another way that we're called to think about suffering. We don't take it into our own hands. right? When we're reviled, when we're threatened, when we're persecuted, we don't retaliate the way that our flesh desires to. We leave it in the hands of our Father, just as Jesus did, trusting that he will punish all wrong on the final day according to his perfect righteousness. So that's how Peter starts off this letter, pointing back to the suffering of Christ and saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The, the other thing that catches our attention, or it ought to, is the fact that we are to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Using your mind and thinking about suffering the way Jesus did is armor. It's protection for your mind, which influences every other aspect of of your being. So this this aspect of armor, again, what does it presuppose? You put on armor when you are at what? War, right? This, our minds are under attack. And I think Peter illustrates this for us beautifully toward the end of his letter that we'll get to on our last lesson, but just kind of hit this now. Be sober-minded. Think rightly. Think clearly. Right? That's what he's telling these readers to do. Be watchful. Why? Why do we need to be watchful? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So so Peter, as he closes up his letter to these believers, again reminds them, Think clearly, think rightly about this aspect of suffering. And we can see that's what he's referring to because he says, remember that the same type of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so we're to adapt that mindset. We have to put on that armor each day and think rightly about the suffering that we are enduring. Now, as we, as we look again at this, uh, the end of verse 1, This is actually one of the more difficult sections in Peter's letter to interpret. The end of verse one, where it says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There are mainly two schools of interpretation regarding what Peter is saying here. I just want to lay those out for you and then tell you where I currently am in my understanding of this text. One interpretation would look at this and say that when Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, what he's referring to are those who have died to sin, just as Jesus died to sin. Since that phrase, suffered in the flesh, which is used here earlier in verse 1, refers ultimately to Jesus dying for our sin, we're to see this as referring to our death to sin when we were united with Christ at our conversion. And I want to say that that's a true statement. It's true that when we were united to Christ we died to sin. And a passage that's referenced to support this interpretation is Romans 6 verses 5 through 7. If I can have somebody read that for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, thanks, Lloyd. All right, so that's one school of interpretation, is to look at that, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, is to say that's speaking about our union with Christ in, in his death. And then the other interpretation is that what Peter is referring to here is not necessarily focusing on our union with Christ's death only, even though that union is true, but rather focusing on, because of our union with Christ, how believers are to follow or to continue following the example of Christ in his suffering, even to the point of death. So one's just looking at the Ultimate union that we have with Christ in his death, the other one is following that example that Christ has laid out for us and how to live our lives because of that reality. So the believers' willingness to suffer in their walk with the Lord rather than giving in to the temptation to compromise or sin in any way is evidence that the power of sin that once characterized these believers' lives has been broken. Okay, so those are, the, those are the two schools of thought there, mainly, that very reputable theologians hold to. I would currently hold to this second view rather than the first, although the first view is true theologically. So I'm not denying the reality that our union with Christ means we've been united in his death, as Romans 6 says here. I just don't think that's the point that Peter is driving at here based on the context of what he's been saying in the letter up to this point. I see him speaking mainly about the union that we have with Christ in following the example that he has left for us and how we are to view suffering. Norm? Would you have verses to support the second position? I would say the context of Peter's letter is what causes me to to look at that, where I think he's speaking mainly about the aspect of how we are to view our suffering for Christ and the example that Christ has left us. And then when he says since Christ in verse 1 here since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking i think he's speaking about the pattern that we are to follow christ in regarding our suffering although the union with christ is certainly true so i'm not denying that at all and i see that as part of it i just don't see that as the main point that peter would be driving in that based on the on the context what i was going to say was i hold to this view the second one 50.1% <laughs> versus 49.9% of the other view. So if you ask me in two weeks, I might be on the other, the other side. But what I want to get at here is whichever view you would hold on that, it doesn't change the meaning, in my estimation, of what Peter is trying to convey at this point, what he's encouraging his readers to do, and that is this. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had regarding his suffering. Okay, so that's what what I see there. It doesn't change the the main point there, but there are two ways of looking at that. I think they both come to the same conclusion ultimately. Um, So I'm good if you disagree with my current position. So that's, that's what we're called to do regarding this suffering that we endure for the sake of Christ. Now, when we move on to verse 2 here, we see the continuation of what's been stated in verse 1. We are to arm ourselves with, to think about suffering the way Christ did, so as to, or for the purpose of, living the rest of the time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God. I like the way the NASB translates the phrase human passions a little bit better than the ESV here. It states here, lusts of men or desires of men, meaning the sinful desires of men. And that's contrasted nicely with the will of God. So you're not living for the lusts of men or the desires of men, meaning the sinful desires of men, but rather you're to live for the will of God or the desires of God. Okay, So one is living unto unrighteousness, one is living to righteousness. We're no longer living for the desires of our sinful natures, which is going to illustrate what some of those sinful desires look like in the next couple verses here. But rather, we are to now live for the will of God or the desire of God. Before we move on from that point, I want to pause for just a second to give you some short, helpful thoughts on what it practically looks like to not give in to our sinful desires, but rather to live for the will of God on the basis of who we are in Christ. Uh, I came across this article this week from the Founders Ministry. Some of you may be familiar with that ministry. If you're not, I would encourage you to look it up. Really solid stuff there. Um, And in this article, they referenced a great Puritan book by Thomas Watson called The Godly Man's Picture, um, which is a really good book. I went through it years ago. But toward the end of that book, Watson gives eight helps or rules for growing in godliness or living for the will of God rather than for the lusts of our flesh. So I'm just going to throw those up here real quick and just comment on them. You can jot those down um, if you want to. And uh, these, these comments here are a mixture of Watson's quotes along with the guy who wrote this article whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, but the first one there is, how, how do we grow in godliness? Right? I just want to give you some really practical things to help us to think about that. The first one that Watson mentions in his book is, use the means of grace. And what he stresses there is being both intentional about your use of the means of grace and consistent in using that. Prayer, scripture reading, corporate worship, etc., you're, you're utilizing, see those as armor for you in following Christ, right? That God has given to them, given those to us as gifts to be used for our growth and edification to be conformed further into the image of Christ. So that's the first point that Watson brings out there. Use the means of grace. Take advantage of these things and be both intentional and consistent in your use of them. The second one that he mentions here in his book is beware of the world. And I like what Watson said here. He said, the world eats the heart out of godliness as the ivy eats the heart out of the oak. The ivy just slowly grows up the oak and begins to deteriorate at it. Right, And that's what the world can do if we're not guarding our hearts. We must remember that this, this world as a system and kingdom is at war with the kingdom of God and the life of faith. So we want to know its dangers and guard ourselves against all the little temptations that are thrown at us on a daily basis by by the world, keeping watch over our hearts. Uh, The third point that Watson mentions here is set your mind on things above. He says, accustom yourself to holy thoughts. Growing in godliness is connected where your mind and your heart dwell. So be sure to, to give yourself specifically to the biblical discipline of divine meditation on the truths revealed for us in scripture. And an excellent book on this, um, I don't know how well you can see that, but is God's Battle Plan for the Mind by David Saxton. Uh, the subtitle there is The Puritan Practice of Biblical Meditation. Excellent read. Really good. I referenced this about a year ago when I preached a sermon that dealt with uh, incorporating meditation and and kind of the lost art of it in, in our day. But that's a really good. If you're looking for something just to kind of get your feet wet on the aspect of uh, understanding what biblical meditation is um, and is not, he spends like the first couple chapters. Here's what it isn't. Make sure you don't adopt any of these pagan practices. And then here's what it here's what it truly is. So that's that's a really helpful. Um, book there, Reformation Heritage Publishing, is the one who uh, puts that out. But just type it into Google, and you'll see all kinds of different things come up for it. Number four, watch your hearts. We must guard our thoughts and affections by praying against sin and watching against temptation. Watson says this, the heart has a thousand doors to run out from. Isn't that true? Maybe think of, um, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? There's so many different ways that you can go. And Calvin once said, the heart is an idol factory, right? It's constantly coming up with things. So we've we got to watch our hearts, uh, observe it carefully, constantly push our hearts back to the gospel where we find our, our, our identity, our hope, our confidence, our strength, our salvation, Keep pointing your heart back there. Number five is guard your time. Uh, Watson says this, time misspent is not time lived, but time lost. Uh, maybe you've heard it said before that time is a precious commodity, and that certainly is true. We must use that time wisely right? For, to work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. So let's think about how we use our time. Right? You know, kind of categorize what that would look like in our work, in our recreation, in our rest, spiritual discipline, so on and so forth. Want to make sure that we guard that time. And this kind of flows into Watson's sixth point, which is consider the shortness of your life. Watson says this: there is but a span between the cradle and the grave. This should move us to make the most of our days. Uh, we have this day to live for the glory of God. Let's use it well. Let's be mindful of how quick this life is going. Uh, it indeed is, is a mist that appears for a little while and then, and then is gone. So let's use it. Let's, let's promote the priority of godliness as we live now. And, and what we're doing is we're preparing for that life that is, that is to come. The seventh one that he talks about is, be convinced that godliness is your purpose. Watson says this, God never sent a man into the world only to eat, drink, and put on fine clothes, but that they might serve him in holiness and righteousness, in accordance with what is stated in Luke 1, verses 74 and 75. Sinclair Ferguson had a great quote here. He said, if the glory of God is the ultimate goal of all things, including our sanctification, then conformity to Christ is the immediate goal of that sanctification. We are called to be like him. Our corresponding responsibility is to become like him. Right. So let's be convinced that godliness is our purpose. We've been called unto holiness. And then eighth thought is a really practical one. Surround yourself... With Godly people. I love the way that Watson states this. He says be often among the godly. They are the salt of the earth and they will season you. I thought that was a great statement. Thinking that in the context of local fellowship, right? Normally we hear that and we automatically think outside, right? We're the salt of the earth, which is certainly true, but think about that preservation that we have amongst one another to season one another, to spur one another on to love and, and good works, uh, so I thought that was really, really helpful. Listen, we need the counsel, the prayers, the love, the encouragement of each other. The Lord has designed it that way, that we would need one another in that in that capacity as he has ordained. So fellowship of the saints will sharpen and strengthen you as God has intended. So I think those are just some helpful thoughts that I wanted to, to give to you. How to practically live for the will of God and how to guard against our our fleshly lusts, which are always warring against us. All right, okay. Any any thoughts there before we move on to verse three, Kevin? Just to go along with that, another picture of that is Second uh, Corinthians three eighteen. Yes. Uh, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, behold, if we're beholding it and yeah. we're adoring it, yep. what's going to happen? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. But this comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen. you have got to have that adoration. That's right. Fixing our mind on it. Amen. And then that changes us. That's right. Amen. I remember, here in a sermon on that, we become what we behold. And as we behold the Lord, we become, become like him. So, amen. Good stuff. All right, let's, let's move on here to verse 3. And again, this, this just continues the flow of Peter's thought up to this point. He says here in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for what for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I'll just pause there for a minute and uh, just kind of think think about that. Because we see the connection here. Notice back in verse 2, Peter says this, Use the rest of your time in the flesh, that is the rest of your earthly life, for the will of God. And then he follows that in verse 3, because the time that has passed suffices for living the way the Gentiles do, which Peter is saying, that's how you used to live, right? So, Peter sees this break here in their lives, right? You once lived sinfully against God, like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, continue to do. But since your conversion, now you are to live like this And that is in accordance with the will of God. And how the Gentiles live, and presumably how some, if not all, of Peter's readers lived, is laid out for us by Peter in this list of sins that he goes on to mention in verse 3. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, let's just kind of make a couple comments here on those on that list that Peter gives. That word sensuality, living in sensuality, means unbridled or unrestrained lust. Unbridled or unrestrained lust. Peter is saying to them, you gave yourselves, as the Gentiles continue to do, over to whatever your sinful hearts conjured up. There were no restrictions for you. You just went headlong into ungodliness. And then he says here, passions, which is the same word that he used back in verse 2. It's also the same word that he used back in chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then he also uses the same word in chapter 2, verse 11, when he reminds his readers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And that word passions literally means a desire for what is forbidden. A desire for what is forbidden. Now, when you think about these first two sins that Peter lists here, he goes after what is going on in the heart first, as is the way with all sin. right? And then those sins begin to manifest themselves outwardly as the rest of this list displays. Drunkenness. Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And what Peter, this list that Peter used here, perfectly categorized, or I'm sorry, characterized the Greco Roman world from which Peter's readers came out of. And it sounds very similar to our society today as well. This isn't just something we look back and we're like, wow, they're real pagans back then, right? And you just look at this and you're like, you see this all. All around us. Okay, so Peter lays that out there, and then he continues in verse 4 to note how others are looking and will look at the lives of believers. With respect to this, he says, that is, this way of living, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're surprised. That word literally means they're astonished as with the novelty of a thing. Like, this is foreign. Everybody else is over here doing this, and you're over here doing this. This is really foreign. This is strange, what you're doing. They're astounded how strange it is for you to not join them in this sinful way of living, especially when they consider that you once joined them in this way of living. That Peter is referring to here. And listen, it, it's a good reminder for us, again, that, that outside of church, you will almost always be the minority wherever else you go. People are going to think you are very strange to live the way that you do if you're living for Christ. And it reminds us of what Peter told us earlier in the letter that we are strangers and exiles as we live on this earth. We're foreigners here, right? And that reality can cause us to potentially compromise and to try to fit in, right? Because nobody likes that feeling of being the odd man out. But the comfort that we take from this is that if you walk into your workplace and you're the only believer there, you're not alone. But the Lord Jesus Christ has said, I'm with you always. So even as the temptation arises to compromise, to to jump in on that joke and laugh and just kind of try to relate a little bit, right? we're called to be set apart from this world in which we live to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter tells his readers here, here's what you're to abstain from. The temptation's going to be there for you to compromise and and to blend back in some way. But don't do that. And as you don't do that, here's going to be the reaction of unbelievers around you. You know, what a gift, too, that God gives us his word to encourage us with these realities that, that we face. I remember reading 1 Peter 4 for the first time after I became a Christian. And ashamedly, my life was marked by what much of what Peter is talking about here. And I remember how comforting it was that although my friends that I used to run with thought that I had totally lost my mind, God was showing me through his word that this is how they're going to respond when I follow him instead of the life that I once lived. I mean, this is like gold, And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. This just helps me. It puts everything into context, and perhaps you can relate to that on some level as well. This is how you once lived. This is how you are now living for the glory of God. So so they think it's strange, this life, that you are now living. And it's not enough for them to just be surprised, Peter says here, but they must malign you as well. Now let's think about that. Why? Why is it not enough for the unbeliever just to say that's that's odd? Why are they also maligning the people of God? Audrey. Because they feel, in a sense, that we are looking down at them, mm-hmm. and therefore they want to bring us down to their level. Right. Very good. Right. Hopefully, our light and salt is penetrating into the lives of unbelievers. That's an uncomfortable thing. I can remember before I became a Christian, when I was working at Publix, I had a guy who was a Christian, he would try to talk to me from time to time. I would do my best to stay away from this guy, right? Because I just wanted to distance myself, and and you would try to think of things that you could tag on that person to kind of bring them down so that you could feel comfortable in the sinful way that you are living, Right? And so these unbelievers, they're gonna. it's not enough just to be surprised. They must malign. They must comfort themselves in some way falsely. So Peter says here, they speak evil of you for this life that you're now living. You're being persecuted by them now, those that you used to associate with. And what's important here is even though they are surprised by how you are living, We are not to be surprised by the fact that they are surprised and now malign us. Peter mentions this a few verses later in verse 12 here when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay? We're not to be surprised when people malign us and they speak evil of us and, and they mock us and ridicule us, right? That shouldn't take us by surprise. And I think too often it probably does. I was just trying to be, you know, cordial and nice and represent Christ and this person, da da da, da, da right? When we, when we have that same way of thinking, those things won't affect us when we think about the reality of who we are as Christians. We, we don't invite that, but we expect it. Right, We don't purposely, let me see if I can get persecuted today, do something, and offend somebody. You may be persecuted just for being sinful, but be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be persecuted. So this maligning shouldn't surprise us, even as our Lord told us this would happen in Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, so there's Jesus telling us, right, how people are going to respond to these things. Okay, so it shouldn't surprise us. They're surprised that we don't follow them, but it shouldn't surprise us when they speak evil of us or malign us uh, the, way they, the way that they do. Now, moving on into verse 5 here. What Peter seeks to do here is to encourage the perseverance of these believers by reminding them that those who are maligning them and persecuting them will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They must not give in to the temptation to compromise or renounce their faith so that they can avoid persecution and be looked upon with favor within society. That approval that they may be tempted to compromise for is short-lived. And Peter reminds them of that because there is a great day of reckoning that is coming for all humanity, both the living and the dead, and this has reference to the final judgment. The reality of that final judgment is a great motivator to genuine perseverance in the Christian life. We recognize what awaits us as believers. A new heavens, new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, as Peter is going to say in his next letter. But we also remember what is the fate of the unbeliever. What is the fate of those who malign us and mock us and persecute us? That day that is coming for them, where they will give an account for their actions. We need to remember that, right? That those who are speaking evil of us, maligning us, mocking us, they're blind and they're walking right into certain judgment. That should cause compassion to arise in our hearts and cause us to fervently pray for them that they may come to know the Lord. Revelation 6 verses 12 through 17 is such a stark reminder of the fate of the unbeliever for it says when he opened the sixth seal i looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Wow. Let's just break our hearts as we remember the reality of what awaits the unbeliever, specifically those who are mocking us and ridiculing us and maligning us. Because, brothers and sisters, listen, we know that just as I was trying to get away from that guy at Publix who was a Christian, and I would try to say little things behind his back to demean his character in some way, we know that if these people that we're praying for come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ really is, they're going to look back at their lives just as we have and say, that was worthless, I can't believe I lived that way, I can't believe I spoke that way about you, and so on and so forth. Right? So we need to keep that always before us, and it's a great reminder to us that we must not compromise in any way and give in to the temptation from this godless society around us, for that society is soon to be judged. It's awaiting that great day of judgment. And then that brings us to the last verse here in our section, in verse 6, where Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let me explain first what this verse doesn't mean before I tell you what I think it does mean. I don't think it means that the gospel is preached to those who have died physically, as though now they are going to get a second chance to believe it. The rest of Scripture makes that clear, that that's not what Peter means here. But even right here in 1 Peter, it would make no sense for Peter to write a letter encouraging his readers to persevere in the midst of great suffering if after you die you get another chance to believe the gospel. It would completely undercut the thrust of Peter's argument all throughout the letter that the pathway to glory is the road marked by suffering for Christ. So it's not teaching a universalism that the gospel is preached even to people after they die so that though they're judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's not teaching a universalism. The NIV actually inserts the word now into verse 6 to those who are now dead, as does the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Both of those are interpretive. That's not in the text, but I think it's the right interpretation um, of that. What I see Peter getting at here, when he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, why was the gospel preached? even to those who are dead. Peter says, because of this. And what does the this refer to? Right. So he says in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What is that this referring to? When you look back at verse 5, it's clear that it refers to this final judgment that is coming, not only for those who malign you, but for all mankind. So how I see Peter reasoning here is like this. The reality of the coming final judgment is the reason why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that is judged on the basis of how they have lived their lives, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Presumably here, the opponents of the gospel were looking at the lives of Christians and saying, what's the difference in the end? You die the same way all men die. I walk into the cemetery, and I see the tombstone of a believer and the tombstone of an unbeliever, and they don't look different. I see two people that have died. So the earthly fate of the believer and the unbeliever, in their thinking, are exactly alike. Both die physically. But Peter, what he's doing here, is seeking to remind his readers that death is not the end for the believer. Based on the hope of the gospel that God will resurrect us and bring us into the new heavens and new earth to be with him forever. So these believers were to take heart that though some of their own had already died, that isn't the end for them. That's why the gospel was preached to them, because the reality of the final judgment is coming. That's why good news went to them before they died, that though they're judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live to God, they might live to live in the spirit the way God does, sorry. That isn't the end for them, but listen, it will be the end for the unbelievers as they die, and Peter's going to speak on this a bit more in verses 12 through 19. What helps me to see this as well as I think about Peter's second letter to these believers is it gives support to that view of verse 6, which again has been a a tricky one uh, for, for people to interpret. But if you look with me at 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13. Peter says this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, right? So there's the mindset of the unbeliever. Peter's saying this is how they're looking at this, right? Where's the promise of his coming? What's the purpose of you living your life that way and enduring suffering for something that obviously is not coming to pass? Verse five. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's, I think, pointing back to what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 5, that reality of all men giving an account Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, I think that helps us to see what was going on during the writing of 1 Peter as well. That reality that this is how unbelievers were looking at these Christians as they lived their lives for the glory of God. They were surprised that they didn't join them in that same flood of devoutry because they were mockers and scoffers at the promises that God had given to his people. So what we see in this section here is we're to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, to not lose heart, to not give in to the societal pressure to live debaucherous lives that many of us may have been delivered from, but to continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, knowing that that final day is at hand in which all men will give an account to him. So we should take heart that all wrongs will be made right on that day. All suffering will end, and we will enter into unspeakable glory with our king and with his people. Amen. Finished on time. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this word that you have given to us. Thank you for reminding us of the reality of what it looks like to follow Christ in this world. Thank you for the admonition to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, the same way that Christ thought about suffering, we are to think about suffering. Father, you have told us that we're not to be surprised at the persecution and ridicule and mocking that we might endure for following the Lord. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord, in every arena of our lives, whatever that may look like, our homes, our workplaces, neighborhoods, unbelieving family, Lord, whatever it may be, help us to joyfully stand firm on the hope of the gospel, the promise of this reality that this glorious day is coming for the people of God. But Father, also remind us of the reality that those who are in opposition to us are really in opposition to you, and they have an awful destiny that awaits them outside of Christ. And so we ask that you would give us compassionate hearts, that you would truly help us to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies. And we know that this is spirit wrought, so we ask that you would help us to do that, Father, help us to utilize the short time that we have here on this earth profitably for the sake of your kingdom and your glory, Lord. We thank you for these things. Pray that you would continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.